0: I just wanted to take a quick moment and talk quickly just about masks. I know we're ready to be done with them. I went to Walgreens yesterday. Um, I'm vaccinated, so it's theater at this point for me, uh, kind of similar to probably how many of you might feel if you've made that step. Um, And some of you may have weighed the cost and are are not going to worry about it going forward, and that's okay, too. Um, And I was like... Just felt very strange being in Walgreens as the only person who wasn't masked. Like I almost felt the pressure just to put it on just because it felt like everybody else was doing it even though they didn't care if I wore it and it didn't seem like it was going to make a huge difference for me personally. Um, So I get it, there's a little bit of tension there. We have taken the the time to think through and our decision-making process essentially was just because of our kids. Uh, We would let adults make their decisions. We feel like you guys have weighed the cost and decided what you're going to do moving forward and that's great. Uh, but our kids, really, they're still in school for a couple more weeks, and at school they wear masks, and uh, nobody under 12 has been vaccinated, so that decision uh, sometimes can't be made the way that a family may decide to want to to make that decision. Um, and we understand that the risk is lower with kids. We're not, you know, uh, anti-science here. We've been making all our decisions based on science, um, but uh, we just felt like we are going to ask them to wear it for three more weeks because the potential of a kid bringing it from one school, giving it to another kid, that kid going to a co-op or a school or even home, you know, I felt like we could transfer something from one community to another still through our kids. And once school is over, that will be mitigated substantially. And so at that point, we'll let people make their own decisions. And um, I think our philosophy is going to change from trying to avoid COVID at all costs to protect people to your adults. And you've made your decisions and you've weighed the cost. And we're just going to let people choose their level Um, Of comfort. And so if you want to wear a mask, wear one. If you want your kids to wear a mask, have them wear one. If you don't, don't. If you don't want them to, don't. Um, We're not going to try to police that or make any guidelines around that. We're going to let people make their own call. So that's in uh, three weeks from now. Today, two more weeks. And uh, on that date, we'll be outdoors, as we were talking about, with Food Truck, having a great time, uh, celebrating. So it will feel extra special, you know, being outside. So uh, I look forward to having you guys there. Um, today, we are continuing in our series, as you heard, Exodus, and um, I wanted to start just by thinking through, um, today I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to challenge us to look at God in the way that he defines himself. Um, I think a lot of us uh, are in that, um, well, I shouldn't say a lot of us. I've been talking lately with a lot of people who are in a deconstructionist phase, they're asking questions. They haven't had satisfying answers. They're continuing to say, well, is God like this? Is God like that? And I don't exactly know if I can uh, bring uh, into, or, or lose the tension between who I think God should be and who God is. And a lot of times what we're doing is similar to what we do with ourselves. We're uh, essentially building a, an identity for God and we're defining who we think he should be. So we're saying he should act like this in these moments. He should do this when this happens. He should not allow for this to happen. And we kind of make these decisions about who we think God is, and we sort of define God in our own in our own mind, kind of make up who this God should be. And today we're going to look at God's definition of himself. He self-defines who he is and lets us in on the way that he is, the character that he has, and kind of how he operates. And um, I think we kind of tend to fall into that category of trying to create God into who we want him to be because we also do that with ourselves. Identity is a really big issue for us. And we talked about it a couple weeks ago. We went through uh, four weeks talking about identity. But our identities now aren't necessarily tied so much, and especially here in America. Uh, we have, like, a lot of us have lost an identity to a place where we grew up or came from, right? My my family was, uh, like, like six generations here in the United States, like um, the biggest identity that my family growing up had, my dad's side of the family, was that they're Southerners and that they were connected to the Confederate Army. Uh, so that was a weird one growing up. Uh, you might say, well, you know, I was Italian. My grandparents came over on a boat from Italy. Or, hey, you know, this is my, where well, my family... Our, our identities uh, no longer are a lot of us connected to our country of origin. Okay, a lot of our identities no longer are connected to what we do. What we do changes all the time. I don't know anyone who's worked at the same company for 40 years and retires in the same profession as they began in. We're always making choices about what we do. So that changes constantly. You know, if we define ourselves based on the stuff that we own or, uh, you know, or sort of that, that kind of thing, that's a flawed version of, of our identity, and so we find ourselves having to self-identify, and a lot of times we're picking the things that we want to define ourselves by, so we're saying, hey, I'm like this, like, so for me, I would be like, hey, I'm a suburban nerd dad who likes old video games, right, that'd be like, that'd be one version of who I am, it's maybe the truest version of who I am, uh, Yesterday, I took my son on a, his 10th birthday tomorrow, and uh, we went to this like, old-style arcade in the Roosevelt Mall that they just put up, in the, uh, and it's called Starcade. They had like 40 awesome stand-up video game things from like the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And I was like, in my glory, okay? Could have spent all day there. Uh, but we self-identify. And then what we do is we think that same thing should happen with God, where we can identify who he is and build a version of God in our own, our own heads. He should be like this. He should do this. He should be like that. And today, we're going to look at how God defines himself. Um, one of the, uh, I, I went to school out on the East Coast, a college called uh, Nyack College. I don't expect anyone here to know what, what that college is. It's a Christian Missionary Alliance is the name of the denomination, and that school was a ministry school. And um, one of the reasons I chose, I was looking at different colleges to go into for youth ministry. Um, I know that's a weird thing to go to college for, but I felt like God was calling me into ministry and I wanted to finish my degree in youth ministry. And I actually looked at a lot of schools and visited them and talked with the professors at each one of the schools. And there was something very specific that I was looking for that I didn't tell them that I was looking for when I went there. I went to a school that was much more money, much more prestigious, visited it. And talked to the professors, and they said, hey, here we have a really strong uh, youth ministry education program here. We're going to teach you theology, right, how to understand the Bible. We're going to teach you how to, how to have the skills you need as a youth pastor. We're going to teach you how to speak to, to teenagers. We're going to teach you about philosophy when it comes to youth ministry. We're going to teach you all these things. And I would generally be listening to this person talk about the program at the school, and I would say, awesome. So when was the last time you were a youth pastor? And uh, oftentimes, the answer was, well, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. And I was like, okay, thanks. It's really great meeting you, and it's really great being here. Um, See you later. Uh, I went to the school NIAC, and the reason I decided to go to this school, it wasn't because it was prestigious. It wasn't because it was... Um, The best school, it it wasn't. It was a great school, but it wasn't the best one. It was not the least expensive one. There wasn't anything that was driving me there. But when I sat down and talked with the professor, I said to him, uh, so tell me a little bit about the program. And he explained, hey, we drive our our students out to have internships from sophomore year. We want them in the ministry, doing the ministry while we teach them. I was like, okay, sounds good. And he, he said, and you know, for me, it's really important. He's like, I am 62 years old. I'm the department chair of the youth ministry department and we require all of our teachers to volunteer in a youth ministry as volunteers. He's 62 years old and he was leading a junior high boys small group, which yes, that's worth clapping for. Yeah, that guy, every single Wednesday was sitting with like six or eight uh, middle school boys and listening to them talk about farts and, you know, and drinking Mountain Dew and hanging out with the dudes and there was something different about it when I had that conversation with him where I was like, okay, I want to learn the philosophy and I want to learn the theology and I want to learn you know, all, the, all the underpinnings of what it means to be a pastor, but also I want to learn from somebody who's actually doing the ministry. I don't want to learn from somebody who says, I used to do it 20 years ago, I used to do it 15 years ago, because anyone who's worked with youth if you're a teacher, if you're a youth leader, if you're a youth pastor, you know that the generations change so fast that if you're 15 years out from youth ministry, you are completely disconnected from anything you're teaching in a classroom when it comes to youth ministry. And, and today, what we're going to see about God is that he is all-powerful, completely, 100% all-powerful. All power is his. That he was before anything else existed. That he created all things and everything is at his disposal. But we're also going to see that he is 100% and completely all personal. That he is invested in the minutia, the details of every single one of our lives. That we have to, as Christians, weigh both of these things and decide if we're actually serving a God who is 100% powerful and 100% personal, that he is still involved in our lives right now to this day, that he is still in the details of our lives. When we stress out about paying that bill or stress out about that kid who won't listen or stress out about that bad day at work, he's in those moments with us just the same as he is on a global scale, moving the pieces around the map to accomplish his will. All right, let's pick it up here. Exodus Chapter 2, verse 23. During the long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. Now, this language is not saying that there's a special way to cry out, that that will go up to God, but I don't know if you've ever been in that situation where you've cried out to God, and you felt like it just bounces right back off the ceiling, like it was not it was not the right phone number. It was just like a returned Message. It was a failed email, right? Like you sent it to the wrong place and you immediately got that reply that was like, yeah, try again later or get it right. This is not right. So the Israelites have been in this holding pattern for a very long time. For Now Moses has been in the wilderness here for about 40 years and they have been in Egypt for about 400 years, okay? And so they're, they've gradually been in a worse and worse position until now they're finding themselves crying out, to God. So it'll be important in just a second. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And he refers back to the covenant that he made with these three patriarchs, which was a one-sided covenant. He said, I will do this for you no matter what you do. I will be faithful to you, okay? And he basically makes this covenant that he'll provide a place for them to live, a land that'll be flowing with milk and honey. I don't understand how a land flows with milk and honey exactly, but that's a very good thing. It's very, it will produce for them. It'll be a beautiful place to live. He would make their uh, descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. Uh, basically, he will bless them into becoming a, a nation and that he will bless all people Okay, and which is a, a shout out to Jesus one day coming through this line of people that he would create. And it says, God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob. His covenant. Now, th- this is the thing. I think a lot of us think that we have to do something to earn God's pleasure, to earn God's grace, to earn God's forgiveness, to earn. And that is the opposite of what the Bible paints from the very beginning. God does everything for us and we respond to his first step. He loved us before while we were still sinners. He gave us grace and mercy and forgiveness before we ever asked for it. All he wants is for us to respond to what he has done in our lives. Not to jump through her hoops, not to earn it. We say around here that this is an imperfect church for imperfect people. God loves imperfect people. God's already made the sacrifice for imperfect people. He's already offering forgiveness for imperfect people. He's, he's giving us grace. He's giving us mercy. He's giving us forgiveness. And we respond out of that. And if we get it mixed up, we find ourselves in empty, dead religion. See, I've got to jump through all these hoops. I've got to get in a place where God can love me. I've got to get in a place where I deserve to be in God's presence. You can't. That's the point. And so it's his covenant with Abraham that he remembers. And again, we don't have exactly the right kind of language because God doesn't exactly remember something that he forgot. It makes it sound like he kind of put it aside for a little while and decided to go back to it. That's not exactly right. All of these words that we say that he heard he saw, he responded, he reacted, he remembered, are really just us putting our language around what God is doing. Is We could say this is the moment that God decided to intervene, that he was always going to do this. He always remembered this covenant. He was never going to let this covenant not be fulfilled. It was always gonna be his plan to use Moses. It was always gonna be his plan to prepare his people the way that he wanted to prepare them. And now this is the moment where he is beginning to intervene. So God looked at the Israelites and was concerned about them, and here's a moment where the NIV doesn't do us justice with how it translates this. Um, he was concerned about them. Is actually this word for he knew their suffering. He understood what they were going through. He felt what it was like to be them in that moment. Now, this is a, an incredibly beautiful line that I don't think almost any other religion or any other God that you would say this about. That God knows what it means to suffer. You know, the idea that God first allows suffering is something we have a hard time dealing with. We say, why would God, if he loved us, allow us to go through difficult things, to struggle, to go through, through suffering? But the Bible is very clear from beginning to end That in this world, you'll have trouble. In this world, you'll suffer. In this world, you'll have difficult things that will happen to you. And your response, how you deal with those things, will be defined by what you believe about the God who you are serving. What the Bible tells us is that the God who we are serving here has experienced those same sufferings and that same trouble and that he is with us in those moments, not that he protects us from those moments. And I know sometimes that is a hollow thing for someone to tell you because when you're in the midst of suffering, all you see is your suffering. You're like, thanks a lot, buddy, but you don't really know what I'm going through. You know, I've been down the road with people who have had horrible diagnoses, who've dealt with infertility, who've dealt with broken relationships, who've dealt with lost jobs and income, and, you know, who have struggled in all kinds of of different ways. And the one thing I can say that's clear about scripture is that God is not going to bounce all the hardships out of your life. You will still continue. And any pastor who says to you, follow Jesus so that you don't have to go through difficult things, is he wants your money. He wants you to shut up and give money to the church. Or if it's a cult, that pastor wants to sleep with all the women. Okay, Those are the two things that happen in bad churches. Okay, And I'm standing here telling you God doesn't he doesn't say you will not, you're not, you're not going to struggle. He says, I, I struggled too. I know, what it, I know what it means to struggle. I know what it means to be at the end of your rope. I know what it means to feel like things are out of control. I know what it means to feel like you, know, you can't fix something that's so broken that it's going to destroy your life. I understand what that is. He, he, I, he decided to go to a cross right, to, to, to struggle to suffer on our behalf so that he could even say, right, so that he could even say, I've been through it. Why did God need to step into humanity and go through the difficult things that we've gone through? He went through loss. He went through betrayal. He he had friends walk away from him. He he went ultimately to a cross. The reason that this is true about God, the reason he chose to do this is because he wanted to be able to uh, carry that same burden, understand what he was saying here when he says, I know what it means to suffer. I know their suffering. What's interesting is that even from the very beginning, there are just uh, illustrations here and pictures and all these Old Testament stories that lead us to see Jesus differently later. That God would step into our shoes and suffer with us. And he says, I, I heard them and I saw them and I was concerned about them and I knew their suffering. And I, and I think one of the things that held back the... the, the um, the intervention here of god to to deliver them from the the difficulty that they were dealing with because again i'm not going to promise you god will deliver you from every single thing that happens in your life in fact the, the scripture does not ever say that. It says that God will be with you through those moments, not will take away all those moments. He's not this cosmic bouncer that makes sure all bad things don't happen to you. But what was holding them back in this moment, because it's clear that God wanted to deliver them from slavery, which again would show us one day Jesus delivering us from slavery, the picture is there for all of us to see, is that there was two things going on here. One, the people hadn't grown desperate enough that they began to cry out to Jesus and actually ask him to intervene in their situations. And this is like so, a super sad reality. But I think many of us, when we suffer, we just deal with the suffering. And what we don't do is we don't ask God to intervene. And I know that's crazy. There have been moments when I've been in these conversations with people, and I say, hey, can I pray for you? And I'm like, have you been praying about this? And if they're being honest, they would say no. Because they don't believe that God wants to deliver them from the things that they're going through. Like there is a certain amount of faith necessary to believe that God still intervenes the same way that he did then now and to cry out to him and say God deliver me from this thing that I'm going through not to say I expect or that you have to but to just cry out to him like a child would cry out to their parent when they're in danger. And so he's waiting on this desperation of this community to, to actually turn to him and engage him. But also he was sort of waiting until the humility of Moses' leadership had reached the right place. And that is another thing that we see in Scripture all throughout the entire thing. If you want to be a leader, humility is the most important thing that you can have as a leader in God's kingdom. Like I've said a couple times here, if you want to be an elder in this church, you better be on setup team. You better be on the worship team. You better be in the kids' ministry, giving your life to those kids. You better be mentoring somebody. You better be working with our youth, our students. Like, if you're not serving here, you're not cut out to be an elder in this church. We, we take humility and service very seriously as leadership. And it's one of those things where I've been in enough churches and had enough experience and seen amazing leaders with humble hearts who listen to the people around them, who lead the church in the right direction, who are a joy to work with and work for. And I've been in places where it is a top-down uh, situation where the leader is in control of everything that's going on. And let me just tell you, that never lasts. Those churches aren't blessed. Those churches aren't receiving God's favor when the leadership is not leading in a humble way. And Moses at this point has not shown any humility in fact he's shown a a rage an anger he's he's a he's a murderer at this point and it's taken 40 years for God to change that in his heart we're going to see here in just a second the humility that's grown in Moses over these 40 years and what I want to say to you is if you're carrying that kind of control factor or rage factor or anger like don't let 40 years go by while God is beating that out of you that is a wasted life Submit to him now. Find that humility now. Turn into the servant now. There's no reason why you can't change. Okay? The Bible is full of people who are not defined by their worst moment, but they're defined by a lifetime of change where God then to, begins to use them. And, and it was funny because Aaron was talking about this passage this morning, Pastor Aaron, as he was encouraging all of our uh, volunteers who were volunteering this morning. And he said, you know, God loves to show off. He loves to show off by using leaders who don't qualify to be leaders. That's true. God wants to change us. He wants to say, you used to know this person and they used to be like this, but now they're full of humility and selflessness. That's what leadership looks like. So he says, the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in the flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up, which I... I love how, like, weirdly stated this is, right? Of course God would show himself in fire. It is both uh, a terror to see fire, but also warmth that comes from fire. If fire's in the wrong place, there's absolute terror, right? But if fire's in the right place, there's absolute warmth, and you're kind of drawn into it. And one of the commentators, as I was reading this, was like, hey, I wonder how long this fire was burning. It actually doesn't say anything about God came and started a fire. It doesn't say that this fire was uh, burning for a day or for two hours. It just says, Moses turned and he saw a fire. Now, first of all, he, he's he gone far away from his family. He's moved sort of out to the edge of the wilderness here in this moment. And you wonder why, why he's going out that far. And the answer is because he's living with his father-in-law, right? I, th- I thought that joke up myself. Um, but then you say, he sees the fire burning and you ask the question, how long was this fire burning? I mean, was it there for 40 years? This is when it doesn't tell me the stuff I want to know. I my brain immediately starts to ask weird questions. Is it Moses couldn't ever see it? That it was always burning? Or is it that it just now was time and it started to burn? Either way, something has happened in Moses over these over these 40 years, that now he's able to see what God is doing, and he's able to respond, and he goes, huh, that's weird. That bush isn't burning up. I mean, I'm not a science teacher or anything, but it feels like there's something weird going on over there. So Moses thought, and again, this is written by Moses. If anyone says that it's not written by Moses, it at least has to be someone who knew Moses' thoughts, which is a weird thing to think about. He says, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses, and Moses said, here, (coughs) excuse me, I am. And then the next verse says, Moses ran away in terror because a burning bush was speaking to him. Now, some of this is like, it does feel middle school boyish right? And Moses, oh, what's that bush burning up? Let me go take a look. Hey, Moses, I'm talking to you from this bush. Okay, here am I, Lord. It feels really weird. Everything about this is very strange. Moses goes over to see it and, and communicates with this voice coming from within this bush. And here's God protecting him. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. He's letting Moses know that he's entering into his presence. Sometimes we don't understand exactly how powerful God is, but he's going to get a picture of the power of God in this in this moment. So he takes his sandals off and gets as close as he can, and then he said the bush said, "I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob." At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. What Moses feels when he gets into the presence of God is the hugeness, the power of God. I think this happens when we are in God's presence. And if you've never been in a place where you felt small and God felt huge, then I think you're missing out on what it means sometimes, at least one part of what it means to worship. There have to be moments in our lives where we are in God's presence and we just feel so insignificant and feel how powerful and intense God's presence is and can be. Every time that God's presence physically manifests itself in Scripture, either through an angel or in this case, you know, through, you know, this direct contact or up on the mountain, all these times when God manifests himself in physically, one of the first things that comes out of the angel's mouth is don't be afraid because one of the first things that people feel in God's presence is a holy reverence for how powerful and huge and amazing God is. So he says, Moses, show your respect by taking off your sandals and understanding that you are in the presence of a powerfully, uh, incredibly powerful God and show the correct amount of Of reverence. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt, and I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. That's that phrase again. I know or understand their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hands of the Egyptians, and to bring them out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. The home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Pez, Parasites, Hivites, and Jebusites. He says, "I am coming down to intervene." And I think Moses probably at this moment is saying, "This is great because this parlor trick right here—what you're doing, your presence manifesting itself in me—when you hit the the Pharaoh's uh, sort of inner temple or whatever, and you get into his household and you do this in his presence, he's going to fold." He's going to let the Israelites go. This is great. God, I think we should totally do this. This is a good idea. You should absolutely go into Egypt and show show Pharaoh this. You told me you come down to release the Israelites? Yes, I'm with you. You should do that. That's a great idea. But that's not how God does things. God doesn't intervene physically when he's doing something like this. He uses his followers to do the things that he has intended to do. It's an amazing thing to think that you might be used by the Holy Spirit to change the world around you so that God can accomplish his will. He does it from the very moment of the beginning of the book that we, we hold dear. He basically says, I'm going to work through relationships. I'm going to get to know people. I'm going to change them. I'm going to turn them to who I want them to be. I'm going to release them into ministry, and I'm going to ask them to go and represent me. Look what he says. And now that the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them, he says, So now go. Sorry, sorry, what? <laughs> wait, wait. You just told me you were going to do this. He says, No, no, go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Now, of course. I start to think like SEAL Team Six, right? Uh, just just stick with me for here for a minute. This is, I promise, it's not a tangent. Uh, Moses knows the layout of the temple or whatever the, the the place where the Pharaoh lives. He understands the inner workings of everything. He probably knows the schedule of the guards. W- Moses could probably sneak into the back door and take care of this whole situation like like that. So in my mind, as I start reading this, I think like he's perfectly prepared. No, yes, he also speaks Egyptian. Yes, he also understands the plight of the people and the, the, the point of view of the palace. So God has prepared him, given him specific, very intentional pieces of information that will guide him in this, right? But it's not that he'll go do it on his own. It's that God will go with him and do the work. He says, so now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of, out of slavery, Exodus three verse eleven. But God said to, but Moses said to God, "Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Who am I? I'm a murderer. I don't qualify. I've been out here herding out in the in the wilderness. Things are going okay." I can see a future for me. My father-in-law is probably going to pass. I'm going to have all this freedom to live my, my way out here. I, I moved out to the country so I could get away from all the craziness, so that I could have my own freedom, my own piece of land. I'm happy to be out here by myself. Leave me alone, and please don't call me to do what you have called me to do. So he says, who am I? I don't qualify, which shows you that Moses has finally reached the right amount of humility. He understands that he is not the thing that is important. And here's what God says to him. God said, I will be with you. He doesn't say you do qualify or that you have special gifts or that you are special or that there's something different about you than every other person around or that you, no, he says, here's what's different about you. I'm with you. You're powerful because you're empowered by me you're going to succeed because I'm the one calling you to do it and I'm the one that's going to walk you through it and it's going to be my presence that's going to, going to equal the, the victory here. And this is what God says to us in every situation where we either we find ourselves in the Israelites' standpoint, where we find ourselves in misery because we're suffering. God says, I will be with you. In moments where he calls us to do something, where we say, I am defining myself by my worst moment, and I don't qualify to do what you've called me to do, he says, I will be with you. This is a very personal God. He is both all-powerful and scary to be around sometimes, to feel a reverence for him that changes who you are, but also very personal, all personal, that he knows you and understands who you are and is calling you into something. He says, I will be with you, and this will be a sign to you that I sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. And I I love it, because he basically says, here's the sign that you'll be looking for. Once I've done everything then you'll know that it was me. <laughs> it's not even breadcrumbs sometimes. It's like, when you fully give yourself to me, one day you're going to celebrate this on the end, on the backside of this. Once they're safely out of Egypt, and you come back to this mountain, and you make a, a, an offering to the God who just delivered you, that's when you'll know. Good, good luck. It's going to be great. Right? Thanks, God. That was uh, really helpful. And so it says, Moses says to God, and of course Moses is uh, being practical here. Anyone here the practical person in ministry? Megan's raising her hand. Aaron, yep. Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What am I supposed to tell them? Up until this point, God has been defined by his roles. Every single time we've seen God talk about himself or someone else talk about God, it's been in his roles. Creator, Father, right? God, the generic version of the word God, he's always defined himself by his role. And this point, uh, Moses is asking him what his, his name is, right? This is a, a distinction. It's like saying, I understand who you are, but I also want to know what is your name? Wh- who am I supposed to tell them? Which one of the gods is the one that's coming to deliver the Israelites? How do I explain which one of the gods is here that they need to fear, That the one that, that will break Pharaoh and release the people? And what God responds with shows you his character and shows you how he defines himself, not how we define him, but how he defines himself. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And that is like not satisfying. You tell him, I am has sent me to you he's like, that, I don't, uh, what? <laughs> that word, uh, that I am phrase translates to uh, existence, essentially. Being. You could translate that to I be who I be. And Rastafarians all over the world were like, yes. I be who I be, brother. This is what God is saying. All, I'm all powerful. I existed before anything. I created it all. There's nothing outside of my grasp. There isn't anything that can define me except me. I am who I am. I existed before everything else. I created all this. This is all my plan. I'm doing something here. It's me. I am who I am. So in this moment, as Moses is on his face in fear, in holy reverence of God, God explained something to him that Moses already knew by being in his presence. That I am who I am. That I am all powerful. That you can trust me to take care of this situation and that you should have a holy reverence around me. But that's not all. God says something else. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me To you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. And I want to stop and ask you this question. Because God doesn't just define himself as being all powerful, He also says, My name is based on the relationships that I've had with people. Yes, I am all powerful, but I am also fully in relationship with people. I'm powerful and I'm personal. I know sometimes it causes us to to think of this like adults where we can actually take two different concepts that seem like they might actually go against each other and that we can put them together and understand who God is is different than anything else in our world around us. That he can be both totally powerful and completely in control but also completely personal and knowable and in the details of our life, that these two things have to be held by us as Christians as both being true about who God is. And it doesn't matter if we can compute all that in our, in our own minds. He's defining himself in that way. I am who I am, and I am also the God of Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob. And I wonder, sometimes we get caught in a situation where we're worshiping only the all-powerful God, and we 're in a situation where we have no intimacy with God at all. when we pray, we don't feel like we're praying to a person who knows us or that we know. We feel like we're we're essentially uh disconnected from this all powerful God that he maybe spun things up or maybe that he's just like angry kid with a magnifying glass just torturing us right that he's just up there, something's up there this this powerful thing, and we have this reverence for him. So we go through the religious motions, doing the things that we think we should be doing, trying to earn this God's approval, saying like, if he is this God and he's all powerful, then I got to keep him happy. And the way I keep him happy is to do good stuff and to do religious stuff and to go through the motions and to show up at church and to do all these things that I think I'm supposed to do, that I learned to do, that I think we're supposed to do. That's one side of the equation. And if that's you, then you don't really have a personal relationship with this God who wants to know you. And I think there's a, another, side, another side of this conversation where we say, Jesus is my homeboy. We got a t-shirt with, you know, cartoon Jesus with a big thumbs up. And he's like, hang ten, bro. And what we're missing when we we have this personal relationship with Jesus, but we don't actually come under the authority and the power of of who Jesus is or of who God is, we find ourselves in a situation where we don't take our sin very seriously. We love grace, but we don't actually want to be holy. That we should be, as one commentator this week as I was reading said, that we should be uh, chasing after holiness and resting in the grace that God provides us. And both of these things are a flawed version of who God is. If he's all-powerful to you and he's not personal to you, then you've missed the heart of who God is and what he wants to do in your life. And if he's all-personal to you and not powerful, then you have taken away the power that comes alongside of this God. And, And really, why are you even asking him to intervene? That we have to balance these two things and understand that sometimes these things feel like they go against each other, but this is how God has decided to define himself. I am who I am. I've been around the block, bro. I started this whole thing. I was here before anything was created. I spun this whole thing up with a plan. I have been in control from moment one. There's nothing outside of my control. And yeah, your world sometimes feels like it's spinning off its axis, but I allowed that because I had to allow this so that you could find a way to be in a relationship with me, that we could find what love is meant that this world was going to be broken around us for a time. I didn't come into this world to protect you from all that. I came in this world to be with you. So yes, I am this God who created it all, that my words literally created everything here but also I am the God who's in the details of your life. And when you struggle, I know what it means to struggle. And when you suffer, I understand suffering. And I am with you. Sometimes that doesn't feel like enough because when you're going through a difficult time, just for God to say, hey, I'm with you, feels like, okay, great, but could you like maybe fix this? Like, I'm praying to the all-powerful God for the moment. Thanks, personal God. Can we get to the all-powerful part? But there is this tension that we can't solve as Christians to believe that we are ultimately loved by this God, that he is, is in control. And to know that he is personal and with us. When we, when we struggle, we can lean into him. That there are moments when we can cry out and he can change the situation we're in. But in the moments where he doesn't change the situation we're in, he's still with us in that situation and understands what it means to suffer. He is both personal and he is all-powerful. So my question to you is, which one would you be more likely to be serving? The all-powerful God or the all-personal God? And if it's all-powerful, then... There is so much more available to you in a personal relationship with Jesus. And if it's the personal one, there is so much more happening than just that intimacy that there is this God who is fully in control and all powerful. Let me pray. Jesus, would you just continue to make yourself known to us more deeply in our lives? Would we experience you in how we interpret your word, in our our prayer lives, in the relationships that we have with other believers, in the way that we can serve your kingdom and who you are, God? Would we just uh, understand who you are at that personal level? But God, would we also understand that you're a God of justice and power and that you take sin very seriously, we find ways to both seek after holiness but rest in grace? God, thank you that you defined yourself in this way, that you continue to reach out to humanity, that you are the one that made the promises and fulfilled them. We ask that you would help us to connect in those ways with you that we would know you both as the all-powerful God and the completely personal God, that as we suffer, we as a community would come around each other and carry the burdens together while we stay in step with you. Thank you that you have promised to be with us in those moments, that you don't leave us out there, and that you're totally in control and capable of anything. God, we continue to have that same amount of reverence, but also that same personal relationship with you. In Jesus' name. Amen.